want to function at our optimal level. Today, the fields of psychology, science, and spirituality have merged to help provide guidelines of how to get there. We now know consciousness is needed for transformation and for improving ourselves in all areas of our life, from partnership to parenting and beyond. There is a science and a practice that underlies this notion of being present for life. Dr. Dan Siegel's Wheel of Awareness is a tool that is amazingly useful in this transformational process. On this episode, we are joined by Dr. Dan Siegel, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the Executive Director of the Mindsight Institute and author of the new book, AWARE, The Science of Practice and Presence. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Dan, I, I just want to welcome you to the show. It's so wonderful to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be joining you. So tell me a little bit, Dan, just about what it what it was. Were, were you always interested in being a neuropsychologist? I mean, is that something as, as a boy you aspired to be? Or how did you get interested in this? Well, no, I actually never thought I'd ever become a psychiatrist uh, or was particularly thinking I'd end up where I ended up. Um, so it's been quite a, um, a, a journey without planning in, in certain ways. Um, there's a book I wrote called Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, which kind of tries to uh, um, explore in five-year periods what exactly happens, <laughs> you know, to, to lead to some of these places. Um, but so no, I, I never thought I would end up being uh, doing what I'm doing exactly. I'm excited about it, but it wasn't in the plans. <laughs> what what was it that got you interested in it? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that um, when I was in college, uh, there was a moment when you know I was extremely interested in biochemistry and I was studying uh, enzymes and how, uh, you know, proteins could lead to certain chemical reactions in fish. I was studying how salmon could go from fresh water to salt water. And at the same time at night, I, I had seen this advertisement for working on a suicide prevention service. And so I started working in the evenings, you know, as a volunteer on the helpline. And I just felt as a teenager, um, you know, as a young college student, that there was something um, profoundly resonating between enzymes and emotions, that the mechanisms of an enzyme to allow fish to survive and the mechanisms of one's own awareness of emotions or the way we share it with each other could allow people to survive in a suicidal crisis. And that experience in my teens, I think, sort of set the stage for a lot of questions about was there a fundamental mechanism that linked our bodily experience with our experience in um, awareness, you know, consciousness, and in relationships? And when I um, chose to go to medical school, uh, where I went to medical school, it was a research institution, and they weren't very focused on the human side of medicine, and so I ended up uh, dropping out of school because I found it so um, distressing how people could be treated as kind of bags of chemicals. So even though I was a biochemist by training 
you know, and was proficient in that, I, I just felt there was something profoundly wrong when the inner subjective life of a person was ignored. You know, so if someone was told they were dying, they were just given the information and the professor moved on. And I, I just didn't want to become that kind of person. So I, ended, I dropped out and for a year wandering around, I ultimately, for lots of different reasons, decided to come back to school. And I made up a term called mindsight for how we see the mind to kind of protect myself during the medical socialization process. And, you know, that was now we're talking about 1981. And, uh, and so mindsight became a guiding light for me as a young medical student. And then ultimately I decided to go into pediatrics, switch to psychiatry and use the concept of mindsight to guide my own sort of personally driven educational program. Cause I didn't really feel even in psychiatry, that the emphasis on the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, was sufficient for really understanding mental suffering. And ultimately what happened was, uh, you know, I, I got in a position of being the training director for child and adolescent psychiatry um, and wanted to bring all the sciences together to understand what the mind was. This was the beginning of the decade of the brain, the early 90s. And uh, I was trained as an attachment researcher by that time. And so um, I worked to see if you could find a way to make one framework that combined all the disciplines into one perspective. And that ultimately became called interpersonal neurobiology. And I wrote a book on that subject after I left the university, because I'm no longer at the university, because uh, I needed the freedom to just have our own school. And so um, that field uh, started back in the early 90s. Um, when I brought a bunch of scientists together. Anyway, once that book was written, The Developing Mind, it was a textbook, my daughter was in preschool and we used the term in a book we decided to write when she asked me to teach at the school. We decided to do workshops together and write, write a book based on it. We used the word be mindful, meaning be conscientious and aware and intentional and awake. And, you know, um, and people <laughs> asked us when we were going to teach them to meditate and I had never meditated before and didn't know anything about mindfulness or anything. This was in like 2003, 2004. And then I got put on a, a panel with this guy at a meeting called, and his, his name is John Kabat-Zinn, and I didn't know him, but I read his couple of books and a few papers. And what was absolutely startling to me back then was that the research was very new, but it's pointed to findings that were almost identical to my field. I'm an attachment researcher. So secure attachment and mindful awareness seemed to have the same parameters that you could study. And then the question was, how could a relational attunement lead to similar outcomes as what ultimately, when I wrote a book called The Mindful Brain, seemed like an internal attunement. And that was the first time I got exposed to mindfulness. And the wheel of awareness was something I developed years before that, um, just as a a natural way of thinking if integration was health, which is what came from the, the 90s, this developing mind project, um, and consciousness was needed for intentional change, what would happen if you integrated consciousness? So that whole wheel that you've been doing, uh, that the book Aware is about, you know, started, and it's just been fascinating to see how that, you know, practical way of integrating consciousness is similar or dissimilar to 
more traditional mindful awareness practices. So that's that's the journey in a nutshell. Well, it's fantastic. You know, I, I think um, one of the things we were talking about before the interview started was how I had had seen you in Boulder. And that was, you know, this has been quite a while ago, but that was the first time I had been introduced. I mean, this could even be maybe 15 years ago, Dan. Mm -hmm. Um, But at that time, I think it was the first time I was aware of what at the time we were kind of calling Buddhist psychology. You know, it was like bringing these principles of spirituality and psychology together. And I mean, it was just mind blowing at the time. And to see now how that really is, it's so, it's just taken off. I mean, it's its just everywhere. And with this Wheel of Awareness, I want to uh, talk to the audience a little bit um, and share with them what the Wheel of Awareness is. But first of all, I want to introduce your new book that's going to be coming out, which is called Aware, the Science of Practice and Presence. And thats it's such an exciting book. You know, I, I just... I, Lord knows I've only had it for a week and I need probably, you know, a couple months to really finally go through it. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. It's, um, you know, it's so interesting because the idea of, of the Wheel of Awareness, as you know, because you've been doing it for over a decade, is very simple. It's the idea that there's a fundamental process that seems to be the basis of well-being. And that's a process we can call integration, which is how different parts of something get linked together. And when that integration arises, you have what's called optimal self-organization, which creates a sense of harmony. And it has the five features of being flexible, the spells the word faces, adaptive, coherent, which means resilient over time, energized and stable. It's this beautiful way in in a sense of describing mental health or any kind of health. And that came from the early 90s of this journey to try to offer a definition of the mind when there wasn't one. Um, and and just the idea that if the mind in part is this emergent, self-organizing, embodied, relational process, this process that's regulating energy and information flow, then you could say, how do you optimize that? And you optimize it through, um, you know, linking differentiated parts. So that became, you know, around this table, just through where I am right here, um, around this table, I brought people up to the table, my patients, and said, well, let's integrate consciousness, because consciousness seems to be needed for intentional change, not only in therapy, but parenting and education and in our personal transformation. You know, we, we have this incredible capacity, as you're pointing out, of being aware, and there's a science and a practice that underlies this notion of being present for life. And um, so that's where the wheel came from. And what's been so exciting about it is I, you know, when I heard about mindfulness, you know, I'd been already doing the wheel with my patients and starting it in workshops and, and with, you know, people who were studying with me were finding it useful. So then the question was, what, what is the mind really that integrating consciousness um, can be a window into understanding the mind? So this book, Aware, is really a practical guide to how yourself as a reader can do the wheel of awareness. Then it summarizes five in-depth cases of people across the lifespan who use the wheel. And then it offers you as the reader diving in, you know, a, a, a deep summary of the science of consciousness. And then it takes the next step, which I'm so thrilled to see what people think about when they read it which is to say, okay, here's a broad 
view of mind as an emergent phenomenon of energy flow. Now, what exactly is energy? And of course, we can see the brain as a process that uses not only chemical and electrical energy, but you know, recently there have been studies in the mechanical aspects of neuronal communication. But it's all energy. So then you say, well, what is really energy? And then I get into you know, the scientific view based on quantum physics of looking at energy. And it's had some really useful perspectives that have emerged because I did the wheel with 10,000 people systematically. I've done it with a lot more, but you know, where I recorded their responses to the wheel where they take the microphone and those who decided to um, try to put to words what happened. And that's been around the globe. So it's been fascinating to get the 10,000 person study, first person experiences with the wheel, and then the scientific view of not just the brain, but of energy, and put those together with now some really fun and fascinating and useful perspectives on where consciousness arises from and how you can use it in your personal life in this really exciting way. So I'm, I'm so thrilled and thank you for, for taking on the book and uh, doing the practice for all these years. Well, and you know, and I think it's a, it's important to explain. So, you know, people obviously can't see what the wheel of awareness looks like, but I want to talk to them about this model for mindfulness, this, this kind of gateway, as you said, as you will to cultivate consciousness, strengthen our mind, cultivate well-being. Can you describe the wheel, Dan? And, and kind of if we can talk about how, how really this model works, you know, talking about the hub and the spokes of awareness go out and the rim. If we can just kind of describe what it looks like at first and then we can go in depth a little bit more. The wheel started actually um, <laughs> by walking my patients around a table and the table in the office basically has a center glass uh, area and an outer wooden rim and then these things that look like spokes of a wheel that hold the table up. Um, my patients didn't want to call it the table of awareness, <laughs> so we <laughs> call it the wheel of awareness and that's where the name comes from. Okay. Um, so if you can picture a wheel, you know, with a center hub, and it might be, you know, with a pretty big kind of hub area. Um, and just think of a singular spoke that goes as what's uh, metaphorically can be considered the focus of attention. And so you have this spoke of attention. You then, you know, you say, well, what is the hub? What is the rim? If you start with the simple statement, consciousness is needed for change and integration is needed for well-being. And then you say, well, what would happen if we integrated consciousness? So then imagine if you were with me in my office as a colleague or a patient or whatever, that we go around this table and we say, okay, well, integration is where you make things distinguished or differentiated, and then you link them. So what is consciousness, right? And while that may feel like a very difficult question, on one level, it's actually not that difficult. You say, it's the subjective experience of knowing. So if I say, hello, you know, were you aware that I said hello? Yes. Yeah. So you have two things going on at that moment. You have the experience of being aware. We'll put that in the hub. And you can simply call that knowing. You know I said hello. But then you have the hello, the sound hello. You know, and that we're going to put on the rim. 
So at a minimum, consciousness includes the knowing, like you know I said hello, the awareness, and the known, in this case, hello. So you differentiate the knowing from the known. And then you can do this systematically by moving a metaphoric spoke, a singular spoke around this rim. So if you picture a full circle as the rim and divide into four segments, the first segment would be where we represent the first five senses. You know, what you hear like hello, or if you saw it written hello, or if you were doing, you know, Braille, you might feel it with your fingers. It'd be hard to taste it or smell it, but those are the other senses. Then you move the spoke over to the second segment of the rim, which in science we call interoception or the sixth sense. So the numbers are in sequence, the first five, the outside world. Now you're going to the feelings and sensations of the body. So this is your muscles and bones and your genitals, your internal organs, like your intestines, respiratory system and heart. And we review those systematically. So differentiating them from each other, but then linking them with the spoke to the hub of knowing. Then we move the spoke over again to the third segment of the rim. And just to keep the numbers going, we can make up a term, the seventh sense. And this is our mental activities like emotions or thoughts, memories, intentions, hopes, dreams, longings, desires. All these things would be considered mental activities. Now, of course, these are woven together with a bodily sensation. So you have a body sensation like heaviness in your heart, and then you might experience sadness. So yes, of course, these are interrelated, but we'll put the emotion, oh, I'm feeling sad as a mental activity, the heaviness in your chest, a feeling in your body. Okay, so then you explore that, and then you move the spoke over yet again to the fourth segment, and just for the fun of it, keep the numbers going. This is our eighth sense, and this is a relational sense, our sense of being connected to other people and the whole planet. And so this is basically, you know, where you've outlined what's on the rim. And then as we would do this, then we would have this opportunity to actually explore the hub itself in a more advanced stage where you either consider the metaphor of bending the spoke around into the hub or retracting the spoke or just keeping the spoke in the hub or some people just like to have no spoke and just experience this hub and hub experience. And I don't know if you've had a chance to do that part, but that's really interesting to talk about. Well, and I do want to talk about that. I, I you know, I, I want to share a little bit in that, you know, in, in my experience of, of doing this practice for quite some time and, and, and also sharing this with other people, a little bit of what this looks like for me, Dan, when, when I have practiced this. Um, and I wanted to share with you that about 12 years ago, so I guess I've been doing it for quite some time, about 12 years ago, when my family went through a very difficult time, um, I used to, to set my timer for 20 minutes, and I would sit outside by my, I had a pond in my backyard, and I would sit outside where I could hear the waterfall going down, and I would practice this, and I truly believe it's what helped get me through this very, very difficult time. Wow. And you mean you'd practice the wheel? Yes. Oh my gosh, wow. Can you say more about how that was helpful for you? Well, so one of the things, as, as you talk about the hub, the hub for me, so what, what I would imagine, and I remember when I first learned this from you, I'm a scuba diver. And so what I would oh. imagine is that hub was the hub inside of me. I could imagine the circle all the way around me. And so the hub kind of in my solar plexus, if you will. 
And that being almost like I am a scuba diver and I'm looking up, I'm, I'm down in the ocean and I'm looking up at all these things that are floating by on the surface, which is like the rim for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. First of all, as I would close my eyes, even though my eyes were closed, I would notice for a moment from that hub of awareness, just any designs on my eyelids, any colors coming through. I could hear the pond, I could smell the water, the flowers. I had a beautiful flower garden, even just the taste in my mouth or the taste in the air. And one of my favorites in this awareness was literally the sounds. And mm -hmm. I still love this today where I'll just close my eyes and, and you just hear those sounds as they arise into consciousness, how, how we mm -hmm. become aware of them coming in and then fading away. I mean, so it, so it was, it was, it was such a grounding and peaceful experience. And then I guess then as we move the wheel, I would do, yeah, I'm such a creature of habit. So what you taught me is what I have done. You know, it's pretty verbatim. And, and I've also, as I've listened to uh, John Kabat-Zinn, it's some of his intra-sensing where we start with the toes and we allow them to be center stage. You know, I, I can just, I, I can almost imagine his uh, mindfulness practice also verbatim, but mm -hmm. feeling all of those things from the inside. And that's such a beautiful practice too. And sometimes when I just do that segment of the rim with my clients that are, you know, maybe panic disordered, it, yeah. it's such a grounding force. Again, it just brings people very into the center of their bodies um, and out of the mind. Then when we go to the next segment, which, which has been a very powerful process for me, Dan, is as I would explore that part of the rim, it was so great. One of the things I remember you saying is, so notice how thoughts come into our awareness. Mm -hmm, exactly. You know, sometimes the thoughts pop in, you know, it's almost like popcorn. Sometimes I, I, it's like, I loved the thought of they're coming in from side to side or maybe front to back. Mm -hmm. And just to observe that. And, and then sometimes even what was helpful is just counting the thoughts, which really helped me disconnect from, I am my thoughts. Exactly. exactly. Um, so I could see them more like. Um, if we use the ocean analogy, it might be a sea turtle floating by, or it, you know, it's it's something that's just coming into awareness and then it leaves, and I no longer have to define myself by that. Mm -hmm. um, and then for me, I think probably it's hard to say. They were all very, they're all very obviously important pieces, but then the the interconnection, which I imagine as these concentric circles, if someone dropped a pebble in a pond. And so starting with, you know, really feeling that connection with people that I really love and then moving that awareness out to friends, other family members, acquaintances. And then as it grows, people, you know, in my community and then I mean, just feeling that deep inner sense of connectedness with with all of life in our world and then feeling it coming back and resonating within my heart. So it, it has grown a kind of resiliency in me. That, uh, that there's no way that I could have imagined from anywhere else. And, and, I've, and I've played a little bit with the awareness of the awareness. Um, mm -hmm. I probably need more guidance in that area. Well, first of all, um, it's beautiful to hear uh, how the experience is for you. And, you know, even just the part of the practice where you're exploring how, let's say, a thought or a memory arises and stays present that is actually accessing in a very deep way a real deep sense of your your hub right and um so even if you never do the bending the spoke or retracting the spoke part 
that actually is quite liberating just to have that part of the practice. You know, the um, experience of resting in the hub uh, is very advanced. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've offered this practice to many, many people in workshops and, and whether they're experienced meditators or never meditated before, you know, that step brings up all sorts of things. First of all, it can be challenging. Some you know, people who've run monasteries and are meditation teachers say it's the most advanced, you know, kind of practice you can do. And but sometimes there are people who've never, you know, meditated before do it, and they 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 have this experience that even expand, experienced people have, which is um, often described in the following kinds of ways. People will say that time disappeared. They all say it's really hard to put words to it. Uh, and it's a kind of a wordless experience, but when encouraged to just find whatever words they can, these are some of the words they come up with, you know, that it's uh, timeless, there's a sense of eternity then. It feels boundaryless, so there's a sense of infinity. Uh, for some people, they experience profound states of love, joy, um, for some God, for some this sense of it being simultaneously empty yet full and this feeling of being at peace mm -hmm. and you know when some of my students come with me to the different workshops and hear the exact same terms over and over again in different settings from different people never meditated before experienced meditators or old young whatever it doesn't matter they're kind of fascinated by that and they sometimes they say no one's going to believe you and you know, I recorded all these responses, so I, you know, the audio recording. And so the question then arises, what actually is the hub? And what is the rim? And what does the spoke do? You know, which is why I wrote the book Aware, was to say, you know, it's one thing to say that a practice is helpful, which is so useful in the world. But it's another, and maybe this is just, you know, kind of uh, orientation I have to really say what is actually going on so we can deepen our practice, deepen our connections with each other, deepen, for example, what we do with kids at home or, or in school. Or So what we can talk about if you want to is, you know, after the 10,000 person study and, you know, when I did it systematically and started collating the data and looking for, you know, its correlation with the science of the brain, the science of energy, you know, I continued to do the practice, but stopped, you know, systematically collecting it. And so one time I was doing it at a recent meeting where I had 3000 people in the room and, you know, they just had, we just had an hour to do the wheel. So we did the full wheel, including bending the spoke around. So just out of curiosity, it was, I wasn't adding it to the study. I just said, how many of you, you know, felt time disappear? And, you know, it was close to about a third of the people in the room raised their hand, you know, so let's say roughly 800, 900,000 people, bam. Now, I'm not including that in the data. The data is only about people who take a microphone and say, this is what I experienced, you know, without being prompted. It's just completely direct uh, sharing. Um, so I'm not including that, but it's interesting, you know, and I did it recently, uh, and you can watch this on our website. For Eckhart Tolle, you know, because he, he, he doesn't usually talk about the science of presence, uh, but he invited me to come to uh, a meeting he was doing as a, maybe I think the first scientist ever discuss his work. 
And you'll see me talk about what we're about to talk about, which is, you know, what awareness is, what presence is. And in that room, there's a, there was a video on. And when you watch the video, when I said, well, how many of you felt, you know, timelessness? You'll see all these hands fly up, you know. And it's just been fascinating to try to find a scientific framework that can help us ask more questions about this, not to give ultimate answers, but the, the journey to do that has been not only um, just scientifically incredibly exciting and practically in terms of being a, a father or a husband or a friend or a, you know, a teacher or whatever, it's been really, really useful. But, but just recently, um, it's a sad and powerful moment, but a dear friend, John O'Donohue, which is pronounced in Ireland, O'Donohue, he had passed away about a decade ago, and we had our first event you know, to honor, honor him. And uh, so the family asked me to you know, present stuff. And so I, John and I had been working on a book. Now, John was a poet and a philosopher and an uh, Irish mystic, um, as well as a, a former Catholic priest. So he came from a very different background than I came from. But um, in getting ready to do this, I, I took a bunch of the recordings that we had done together and also found a document he had published just before he, he suddenly died called The Poetics of Possibility, where he looks at philosophical views of possibility. And as you'll see in a moment, that publication, which I didn't see until just like the week before I presented just last month, or actually not last month, just earlier this month, um, in the west of Ireland, in Estimon, uh, it turned out that that, even though John's body has died, the ideas that John was working on and that I was working on, and now over these last few years of putting this together, have an incredible resonance. Uh, and so um, maybe we can get into that, Stephanie, if you yes, want. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So here's the, the first statement to make is that, you know, since the time of Hippocrates, 2,500 years ago, modern medicine for sure and modern science also has emphasized the idea that mind, your joys and sorrows, only comes from your head. And this was published by Hippocrates in a book called On the Sacred Disease about epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And William James in 1890 so, you know, over 125 years ago, you know, reaffirmed this position. And it's something people are very familiar with in academia. Mind is a kind of synonym for brain activity. In fact, in a textbook by John Cassiopo, that's how they define the mind, brain activity related to feelings, thoughts, and behavior. So even if you stay at the level of brain activity, you get basically this really fascinating what's called neural correlative consciousness, which is how integrated the brain is determines states of consciousness. And there's a fascinating thing. We don't know why linking differentiated parts of the brain in your head would be associated with uh, consciousness, but that's the, one of the leading theories from Tononi and Koch and originally, but Tononi and Edelman and other people like Rodolfo Linus write about this as well. And Antonio Damasio writes beautifully about it. And you know, so you, we could stay there and just say, okay, an integrated brain is associated with awareness, and that's awesome and, and great. And I think that's a beautiful, hard-earned set of studies. And I summarize that in AWARE. But then I say, 
you know, even if that's what the brain is up to, that energy flow, energy and information flow in your head is integrated, it's linking differentiated parts to high degrees and somehow you're aware. What in the world is energy flow really mean? What does that mean? And while this isn't a common thing to do, and some people say, oh, just stick with the brain, why are you going beyond the brain? Well, you know, for years I've been writing about how the mind includes the brain, but it's not limited to it. That the mind is not a synonym for brain activity, that that's a part of a much bigger story. And while we want to embrace the wonderful work that neuroscientists do and really build on it and find what E.O. Wilson would call a consilient approach, that is where it fits into what other frameworks, let's say like anthropology or sociology discover, we also want to go deep down into physics because energy is the purview of physicists. So I was able to spend a week with about 150 physicists. Some were mathematicians, many were quantum physicists, to ask them what is energy. And ultimately this is what they said. Energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. Programming on NoCo FM is supported by its listeners and by Audible.com. With over 180,000 titles to choose from, Audible.com allows you to listen to an immense library of books for every taste on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, tablet, or computer. Audible.com has a special offer for listeners which includes a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial. Learn more and get your free audiobook now at noco.fm audible. because, you know, of course, there are ways we know energy, you know, as mechanical energy, like in our movement of our body or, you know, kinetic energy of air molecules, you know, with sound or electrical energy with electricity or chemical energy, you know, with enzymatic transformations that I was you know, trained to study. Um, and those are all forms of energy. And when we look at our relationships with each other, it's all about energy flow and how we share that in the form of what is often information. So energy is the fundamental essence, some physicists would say, of the universe. And what happens is when it's in a certain pattern symbolizing something other than itself, it's called information. It's like energy in formation that is a symbol, like the word hello. You know, hello is just energy, but it's because we have a common language and we share the symbolic meaning of hello. If we were speaking Spanish, I'd say hola, you know, and it'd be a little different. So anyway, energy and information change, so we call it flow. Now, what exactly is energy? So energy, as the movement from possibility to actuality, can be graphed out. And at this meeting with 150 physicists, I, the students were saying, well, what's happening, what's happening, we don't understand, and, you know, all this stuff. So I made this drawing, and basically, if you picture... Um, an axis going up and down called the y-axis and an axis going left and right, let's call that the x-axis. 
the x-axis would re represent change, or what we usually call time or clock time, and the y vertical axis going up and down would represent what some physicists call a probability distribution curve. And to think about it simply, I use an example in the Aware book where the drawings, my daughter Maddie, she is a beautiful artist and she, she did all the drawings for it. You'll see this notion that right now, Stephanie, if, if I am going to say a word, but I haven't said it yet, and you and I share a million words, what's your chance of guessing or knowing the word I'm about to say? It's one out of a million. Mm -hmm. So that's called near zero. It's not quite zero, but it's near zero. We put that right. at the bottom of the Y, you know, up and down axis. But then once I say mountain, it rises up to 100% because I've just said mountain and you know the word mountain. And let's say I'm only going to say words with M. So instead of one out of a million, let's say there are, I don't know, you know, 100,000 words with an M. So it'll be one out of 100,000. Or let's say there are, you know, 30 mountains in Colorado. I know there are more, but let's say there are 30. Then it'll be one out of 30. So we have three positions we've located. We have a peak at the top, which is 100%. So I say mountain, but we have then something called a plateau, which would be, let's say, one out of 30 mountains, I might say. So that's an elevated position on this Y vertical axis. But then if we drop all the way down to the maximum number of things that could be, but that yet have not manifested into actuality, but remain as potentiality or possibility, then this is would be the bottom. Let's make another axis, a z-axis going in and out. So when you actually draw this bottom position, the maximal openness, the maximal possibility, let's call that the plane of possibility. So we have three things. We have a plane, we have the plateaus, and we have peaks. Now, in this graph, what occurred uh, to me was that it actually matched the study that was ongoing at this time, that the wheel of awareness could be seen as a point on the rim would be like a thought, which would be a peak, or thinking, which would be a sub-peak value, or it could be an emotion on the peak, or emoting, which would be a sub-peak value. It could be a memory on the peak, or remembering as a sub-peak value. But then you might be in a state of mind, or have a mood, or an intention, that would be represented as a plateau where only certain kinds of thoughts or emotions or memories might arise from that state of mind, that plateau. But then we had all the data on people's descriptions of the hub. And when you put them all together, for example, the statement, I felt incredible expansiveness, or I felt connected to everything, or I felt it was empty and full at the same time. The question then arose, could the hub of the wheel correspond to a probability position in the plane of possibility, which quantum physicists would say correlates with what's called the quantum vacuum, or what, what Arthur Zions, when he and I were talking about this, likes to call the sea of potential. And Arthur is a quantum physicist who is the former president of the mind and life, organization which with the Dalai Lama uh, supports the study of meditation like in Richie Davidson's work and Richie used to be on their board and John Kabat-Zinn was on their board and all this kind of stuff. So Arthur said, well, yeah, that's that's 
corresponds to the sea of potential, what you're describing as the plane of possibility. And Arthur's enthusiasm for this model gave me a reassurance that it might be on the right track and other quantum physicists too. So it's not said by quantum physics, but it's conciliant with it. It is, it's, it fits with it, even though it's not said by it. And here's how it goes. That awareness, metaphorically represented in the hub of the wheel, might just be when the energy flow has moved into the position of the plane of possibility. And I say it in that kind of awkward way because some physicists say that in the quantum vacuum, in this plane of possibility, there is no energy. It's the formless source of all form. So as a writer, you just have to be very careful to be consistent with the science. So we'll just use the term probability position, even though energy may not be in the plane, it arises from the plane. So I'm just trying to be super careful about that. But the issue is exactly the same, that perhaps the reason people describe this emptiness and fullness is that it is empty of actuality, but full of possibility. It's empty of form, but it's the formless source of all form. So it's both empty and full. People who have a religious orientation say they experience God there. For those that don't experience it, I say, well, it's the generator of diversity. It's the G-O-D, right? Because anything that may arise comes from there. And I've actually offered that to very religious people, and they're fine with that acronym, the generator of diversity. <laughs> and what's really fascinating, Stephanie, is that when you look at a number of issues about energy, one in particular, just to say here, is that and this is something, you know, we don't usually think about, but it's written quite a lot about by physicists. We do have two states of being in the reality that seem to have two apparent sets of laws. Uh, one is called a macro state world that Sir Isaac Newton talked about when he talked about being able to calculate the location of celestial bodies. That's called Newtonian physics. 350 years ago, Sir Isaac came up with this stuff before he was a sir, but anyway, Isaac Newton came up with it. And um, in Newtonian laws, you have something called the arrow of time. You have a directionality of change. So if you and I were in a kitchen together and we broke an egg open, you couldn't unbreak the egg. There's a directionality of how things move even if there's no such thing as a flowing substance called time. There is a flowing thing called change. And in fact, time, as we name it, may actually be just the awareness of change at the macro state level. Now, when you read deeply into the physics of time, what you come up with is the, the view that at the micro state level, the Newtonian classical physics laws do not apply and instead you have quantum laws, which are governed by probability, and there is no arrow of time, none. There's no directionality of change. And when you talk to people about the sense of timelessness, I think what's happening, this is a guess, is that awareness, pure awareness, the hub, the metaphor of the hub, is a microstate in which the sea of potential is one condition. That's why I'm calling it a microstate. That is, 
it's infinity, essentially. And if, for whatever reason, we don't know why, the subjective experience of knowing, of being aware, arises from it, then what's so exciting about that proposal is that it means that when you open yourself or you're helping others open in classrooms or at home as a parent or as a therapist, when you help people access this hub, if you're doing that kind of visualization or practice, but ultimately whatever the practice is, when you develop this kind of presence, which comes from the plane of possibility, it's not only the source of the subjective experience of knowing, it's actually literally the source of other options. So you're dropping energy flow into this probability position of the plane where a sense of timelessness arises. There's no more arrow of time. A sense of connection to everything exists because your plane and my plane are basically identical. It's where we find each other. And this sense of new choice arises because this is literally, in terms of reality, the source of other options. Energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. These other possibilities rest in the plane of possibility. They rest in the sea of potential. So when you drop your energy flow, your mind's experience, into this state of presence, you're actually accessing other options. And that view fits with meditators' experience, it fits with the 10,000-person study, it fits with poetry, like, for example, Rumi, you know, writes about, you know, there is a field beyond wrongdoing and rightdoing, I'll meet you there, you know. He's talking about the plane of possibility, as far as I can tell. You know, I'm reading a lot of poetry for the next book I'm writing, and, uh, you know, it's amazing how poets, including John O'Donohue and Diane Ackerman, you know, have access to this reality and, you know, how in, in, so far people send me, because I'm not trained in this, they send me their particular spiritual or wisdom traditions writings and, you know, I'll glance over what they've outlined for me to look at. And so far, the plane of possibility perspective, we call it 3P perspective, plane, plateaus and peaks, fit with every wisdom tradition people have sent me. So that's interesting. It fits with the physics, of course. It fits also with the brain science, and it fits with people's first-person experience of meditating, not just with the wheel, but other practices, too. So it's a really exciting moment, and, you know, the whole thing could be wrong. And I always remind my students, you know, always look for the things to prove things wrong. They go, you mean right? I said, no, no, no. You really want to make sure you're, you're not just, you know, finding little things. So, so far, things seem to fit with it, and if it's true, it's just a very exciting moment to you know, share this in the book Aware and see how people literally come to live from the plane, not living in the plane always. You don't wanna make yourself not integrated and just try to stay in one place or another, but to, to make the plane more accessible in your life and to live from it. Well, and I think that's truly the gift, Dan, is when, when we are able to access this plane, if you will, and, and be in this hub and experience ourselves in the way that you're saying, and I think this is one of the important things to say, you know, how does it benefit us? How does it benefit us as human beings? I mean, we're talking about, you know, quantum physics, and sometimes when we can mention some of those things, people get the deer in the headlights look, and, yeah. you know, it's, it's th there's actually what we're talking about actually has, if you will, very practical application in our lives. Um, when you talk about 
in Mindsight, and I know you share this also in, in your book, Aware, the experience of you teaching the Wheel of Awareness, I believe it was to the 16-year-old Jonathan. Absolutely, yeah. And, and then what his, you know, because this practice, one of the huge things about this is that there are so many benefits because it does, it, it cultivates self-compassion, outward compassion, empathy, amazing peace, as well as, you know, as you were talking about this field of potentiality, you know, I, I think about Wayne Dyer talking about, um, you know, look around you, every single thing that you see at one point, it, it was just a possibility. Well, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful the way you're saying it. And, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, in Mindsight, it was my first public book and they literally would not let me put this stuff about quantum physics in there. Every time I tried to sneak it in, they say, no, 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 no. <laughs> so, um, so I was so happy that with this book, I think it's time that people really be given the opportunity to slowly and gradually and with Maddie Siegel's drawings, beautiful drawings, to see you know it build up. And what's thrilling about it, just as you're saying, is it's extremely practical. And even if you just stay at the level of the wheel metaphor, if you know the background of the plane of possibility, the plateaus and the peaks, then you can know, for example, that the rim are the plateaus and peaks. That's what the rim is. It's filled with those things. And so sometimes you can get uh, to be imprisoned by the rim, just to use that metaphor. And dropping into the hub actually frees you. And you can stay at the level of the metaphor. And, you know, people love the drawing. And, you know, there's also a story of a little boy named Billy who's five, where the teacher teaches him to do the drawing and he's expelled from one school, comes into her classroom in this new school, teaches the wheel of all the kids. And, uh, and then he comes in the next day and says to the teacher, you know, Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Smith, you know, you gotta give me a break because I'm about to punch Joey. You know, I'm lost on my rim. I gotta get to my hub. And he takes the time to visualize the wheel, understands that he is more than just an impulse to hit, even though that may be what he learned from his past. And he learns the power of the pause to drop into the hub, become aware. And in our view, we could say, yes, he's not only aware, he's also tapping into the plane of possibility where other options arise and love naturally arises. I think that's all true. Yes. But Billy, Billy, you don't need to explain about the plane. He just says, I got to get to my hub. And he knows the feeling of it, right? So this is where you've got a practical metaphor, the wheel of awareness. You have a drawing kids can do. You have a practice, just like you, I do it every day, you know, and it, it, change, it changes my life every day. It's different every day. And, and then you have this background science view that, you know, look, if someone reads Aware and they say, I don't want to know the science, I just want the take-home tips, they're in there too. I mean, it's all there. I just decided, rather than make a book that was only kind of a travel guide to the wheel, that I wanted to be a travel guide with some, some deep substance of science. And I wrote it in such a way that if a person chooses to skip this science, it's absolutely fine. And they will be able to, to go on. What I do is I describe these five individuals who use the wheel, including Jonathan and Billy. And you see that if you do take a little bit of the time to understand the science, you can really understand, for example, how Jonathan really healed his dysregulated state. 
not just with the metaphor of the wheel, but understanding what it meant for him to get out of plateaus that were driving him mad and that he could literally access the plane and while a plateau might have a tendency to arise, new combinations became a resource for him because he had dropped into the plane. And he could live from the plane, not meaning that he was being stuck in the plane. You know, you've got to press on the brakes when you see a red light or pay your taxes or say hello to a friend. Those are all things on the rim. Those are all, you know, plateaus and peaks. So the 3P approach isn't saying, oh, you know, move to a cave and just bliss out in the timelessness of the hub. You know, you can choose to do that for a week if you want. Awesome. But, you know, an integrating life involves peaks, plateaus, and the plane. And sadly, many of us get caught in chaotic or rigid plateaus and peaks. And the pathway to liberation is a pathway toward the plane so that you liberate presence which is the natural portal that allows integration to arise. And so when you see that, if you're not into, you know, the drawings of the graph of the plane of possibility, that's totally fine because as a practice you can do every day and you just live it. And what's so interesting when people do live that way is that changes you in a deep, deep way because you're integrating consciousness and finding deep connection not only within yourself, but to other people and the world around you. I had one person, Stephanie, at a meeting. We were doing this. It was just amazing. She raised her hand in the small workshop. There's like 200 people there. And, uh, and she's crying. And I said, do you want to share with us what's going on? And she said, because uh, I explained the wheel and explained you know, the plane of possibility and all that stuff. She goes, my whole life, she was 60, my whole life, I thought I was insane because I would feel this deep timelessness and this deep connection and no one could help me understand it. So I thought I must be just nuts and she's crying and she says, but now I realize I'm very sane and I just had um, contact with the plane of possibility. And right now I feel completely different than I've ever felt. And it was, you know, because as a scientist, I'm always, you know, you know, of course, fascinated with understanding the science of things. But what she said was an affirmation that it's not just intellectually interesting. You know, you can't just do the wheel of awareness and say, oh, the hub is timeless and it makes any sense. When you look at the deep science of reality and the nature of time, you know, and someone did this actually in a workshop who got into this timeless state, came up to me afterward and said, look, I live right next door to Sir Isaac Newton's house in England. Will you come do the wheel of awareness around the apple tree where he figured out gravity? And I said, are you kidding me? She goes, I'm not kidding you. So I did that last year and a documentarian went, we made a little film of it, but it was absolutely amazing to be in Sir Isaac Newton's house where he was born. And then during the play, he left Cambridge University and we went to his bedroom where he was and figured out all sorts of things. And you can look out the bedroom window, you know, at the tree. And then we went down and we did the wheel of awareness around the tree. And the thing is, when you get into the hub, you get to a place that if Sir Isaac Newton was still alive in his body, and we could actually have a conversation with him because we made a shout out to him, it would have been so much fun to say, look, because he had a quote on, that was posted on the wall of his bedroom. 
or outside in the hallway. It said, I can calculate the location of celestial bodies, but I cannot calculate the madness of men. And he knew that the mind somehow had something special beyond just what planets have and stars have. And so I would say to Sir Isaac, yes, you beautifully created a set of laws and discovered a set of laws with your careful analysis of the macro state world. And that all is still true. You know, to get into an airplane, you want to fly in a Newtonian airplane, not a quantum airplane, right? You want to fly in Qantas airline. So they say, we're going to Sydney, Australia. You go, cool. You know, and if everything works mechanically right, you get there. And quantum airlines is about probabilities, not absolutes. And so they would say, we're probably going to go to Sydney. And it depends on the awareness of people or it depends on a number of things. You know, so we, I review these different quantum issues. Um, and I would say to Sir Isaac, look, there's a whole bunch of science in the last 100 years that's been empirically proven, like entanglement or like the lack of an arrow of time. And so you were working at one level of macrostate reality, still holds true. And there's a microstate reality, and the mind may tap into both because we are born into these large bodies, macrostates. So you probably have stuff on the rim that is more macrostate, Newtonian, aerobound, and then you likely have hub-based stuff that's more aero-free and more based on probability. What a cool experience, Dan. What an amazing experience for you. Oh, it was. It, I had to pinch myself, and, and when you, we, we're going to release the video soon, and you'll see how exciting it is to just literally be doing the wheel of awareness on this misty day in England around the apple tree where Isaac Newton figured out gravity. Um, it was just amazing. Well, I, I am so thankful, you know, for this time with you. I, I literally had so many questions written out that we never got to. <laughs> we'll have to do part two because I, the book is so fascinating. And, you know, I, I just think there's so many different important points that I, I want people to understand and want to share with people because it has been such a big deal in my life. Um, it's been so helpful. And, and then I see it, as I said, you know, also in the lives of my clients. And oh, so, again, so you know, in, in the 11 and a half years I've been in private practice, I've seen these concentric circles of the Wheel of Awareness reach other people and, and be able to make differences and change in their lives. And it is, it's cultivating all these things we talked about, helping people, you know, cultivate a sense of connectedness or compassion or empathy for themselves and for others. And Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a beautiful gift. And I'm so thankful for this model. And I'm very thankful that you shared this time with me. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much. I'm, I'm very grateful that it's of help. And uh, I thank you for all your wonderful work. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. Ready and to bury your father in your mother. What did you think when you lost another? I used to wonder why. The Wheel of Awareness is a tool for transforming our lives. Oftentimes, we get caught up in trying to control outer circumstances that are beyond our control. While we cannot always control what is going on outside of us, we can center in and ground ourselves in the present moment and cultivate resilience, calm, and strength. Through the consistent practice of dropping into our hearts, 
or the hub of awareness, if you will, we begin to experience life and ourselves in a new way. We access tranquility, peace, and a deeper connection to each other and to all living things. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. Yeah, yeah, we were